2: Each week, we focus on a person, historical event or pop culture moment linked to HIV and explore the story of what actually
1: happened. I'm Sarah. And I'm Jess. And between us, we've been working in the field of HIV for 40 years. Our aim is to get as many people as possible HIV educated. Our mini-series focuses on people who recklessly transmit HIV. But we need some balance here because we don't want people to be fearful of those living with the virus. There are approximately 37 million HIV positive people in the world and we've featured less than 20. We don't want anyone to be under the illusion that recklessly or intentionally transmitting HIV is commonplace. It's not. HIV medication stops people living with the virus from passing it on to others. We call this being undetectable. And it's one of the reasons that HIV rates are falling and why it's so rare for people to be prosecuted. But when people do appear in court, the media attention often causes fear and stigma. So our series is about setting the record straight. Welcome to HIV Hope and Charity. A crime edition. Oh gosh, yes. Yes, it is another crime edition. There are so many titles to this podcast, it's quite confusing. It's HIV Hope and Charity, then is it HIV Heroes, is HIV History, and now is it HIV Crime? just extending it forever, just the longest titles ever. I know.
2: (laughs) No, it's (laughs) definitely a crime edition this week. I love the one we did last week. I learned so much. Yes, yeah, so we were looking at the difference between reckless and intentional transmission and the difficulties actually improving either to kind of set the scene, weren't we, for this week's episode where we're going to look at early cases of STI transmission and the outcome of those cases.
1: Oh, as in, in, in a legal sense, not just literally the earliest cases of an STI being transmitted. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, I've got all the way back to the Victorian time, probably even before that. It's gotta
1: be before that, hasn't it? Yes, because STIs have been around forever, haven't they? Yeah. If you think about everyone that was dying of syphilis and <gasps> way back in the day, going mad.
2: Oh no, I haven't looked at any of that. No. We've just looking at it in a legal sense. Those that got brought to court. Right. We're both a bit weary today as well, aren't we?
1: Well, the heat wave continues. It does, it does. But I'm actually very excited to um to get going on this. Us, it's early in the morning and we're, we're cool. Yes, we're actually recording this at 8 a.m. That's very early, everyone.
2: <laughs> but for a lot of people, it's not. They're like, it's the middle of the day. But for <laughs> us, it's quite early. Okay, so what we're going to do then, we're going to look at some cases that have gone through the courts where people have been prosecuted. And really, it's, it's a way of highlighting how the law is kind of ill equipped to deal with cases like this. In the past, they found it difficult to know which section of the law applies. But I think it also shows how far we've come in terms of understanding and interpreting the law. And that will help us with future episodes where we look at individual cases in more detail. This
1: is this is sort of HIV history as well then. It's a bit of an amalgamation. Yes. yes,
2: it is. And you are going to need your legal, legal
1: brain. Oh God. Okay. Okay. Wait, I was thinking about more legal words to throw out there. I can't think of any. <laughs> That um, Laura A-level, that worked a treat for you, didn't it? Being put on the spot, you know, I can't cope with ever being put on the spot. Again, I just want to shout pro bono. <laughs> oh, mens rea. there you go.
2: Excellent. Shall we start? Shall we just do the first case? Yes. Now this one, it doesn't relate to HIV, but it set the tone for future cases around HIV. So we're looking at an appeal. In fact, all of the ones we look at today are appeals. So they've all been convicted, obviously they've all been charged, then they've been convicted and they appealed their sentence. The first one, it's someone called Charles Clarence and it took place around the early 2000s. There's no date quoted on the appeal reference, but I think it's around the early 2000s. He was charged and found guilty of unlawfully inflicting grievous bodily harm, occasioning actually actual bodily harm on his wife, Selena by having unprotected sex with her and knowingly transmitting gonorrhea to her.
1: So the first one was around gonorrhea, no, nothing to do with HIV hepatitis or... So he'd been convicted. Obviously, he appealed his
2: sentence and the appeal court are kind of reviewing the case um, and deciding whether he's been lawfully prosecuted. They found that having sex with a spouse while knowingly infecting her with an STI without her knowledge didn't constitute unlawful or malicious conduct, as there was no intention to transmit the infection despite the risk being known. In all my days, I will never
1: understand that thinking. That's bizarre, isn't it? But like you're saying, you can see how much further the law has come from what we talked about yesterday, because that wouldn't have been the case at all, would it? Of course. How odd. God, being married to someone's awful, isn't it? I mean, it was like when, you know, being able to assault your partner was just completely legal, because if you're married to them, then that's just fine. And it wasn't, I think, until the 90s that that law was overturned, which is bananas. This is very similar, actually. So the court ruled that the
2: actions fell short of assault. Additionally, there can be no assault as marriage, as sex within marriage, sorry, was consented to. So the actions fell short of the requirements of a conviction. So it's exactly what you've just talked about. If you're married to someone, you've consented to having sex with them. So it can never be viewed as non-consensual.
1: Isn't that horrendous? I, I can't get over that. And, and we're talking about the 2000s. That was not that long ago. So the outcome of the appeal was
2: well, the court determined that Selena consented to sex. So no rape occurred and that as she'd consented, no assault had occurred. So all the judges considering the appeal were in agreement that there's a requirement for an assault and an immediate connection between the violent action of the defendant and the onset of the consequences. As Selena had consented to sexual intercourse, there had been no violent action that had resulted in her contracting gonorrhea.
1: That's just mind blowing, isn't it? The consent was just the time you got married however many years ago.
2: Yeah, yeah. And that you can never class it as assault because, you know, there wasn't any violent action. They don't consider knowingly transmitting an STI infection to be um, any kind of consequential action. God. Madness, isn't it?
0: If there was ever a
1: reason not to get married back then, I mean, yeah, this would be it. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> so they said an assault charge can't be applied because it, it, you know, his actions not constitute assault. In addition, they said Clarence could not have acted unlawfully as he had the legal right to have sex with his wife. I know that was my face at the, t- at the time. <laughs> so when you marry someone, you give consent for life for them to have sex with you. And therefore, it can never be unlawful. So like you say, you, you can never say that, you know, your husband raped you, for example. You didn't consent to sex. Because i like, no, 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 you consented on the day you got married to him. Oh, my God. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? It really is. So... On that basis, the appeal the appeal was allowed and the conviction was quashed. Did they stay together? God, I hope Selena got a divorce. I don't know. The appeal doesn't cover that. Oh, you would think not. I mean, she has brought this to court. So can imagine how
1: frosty their household was after if, all of this had happened? I feel like all the women getting married back then, all men, because I'm sure it goes both ways, you know, you're both consenting by getting married. I feel like we should have been talking about that more. That should have been the main thing that when, hmm. before we were getting married, everyone's going... So you do understand that you're now just, this is consent forever, essentially.
2: I know, but it, I mean, what can you
1: say? I'm not telling you this
2: because, you know, so we can get annoyed about it, although it is annoying. I'm telling you this to highlight that the law around sex is mental back then. And although yeah. courtrooms, those in position to consider appeals at the time, very heavily male dominated. It's much better now back then it wasn't. And I think that shows with this case. And oh, this set the tone.
1: This is like set as case law now for other cases relating to HIV. I would absolutely agree with you. I mean, it's still a real male dominated industry. But yeah, back then, my God, the laws were definitely, well, like, we were, well, like we were talking about in the last episode, if you were raped, the burden of proof was on you to prove that had happened. And again because it was the majority of men as the perpetrators, it sort of served them well, didn't it? I'll just sit back and you have to literally prove yes. that this happened, which imagine going through that and then the trauma of having to also prove it as well. I mean, yeah, you can see this was a very male-dominated, like you're saying, the whole sex laws situation. Just very much in men's favour, isn't it? You're consenting forever and that's it. That is I think, nuts. Yeah,
2: no, absolutely. I cannot imagine having been this woman and being told that even though your husband had gonorrhea, he knew he had gonorrhea and he had sex with you, you consent to that because you're married to him. No, 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 no.
1: Exactly. Like, oh my God. Okay. Well, I am angry. Even if you told me not to be, I can't help him. <laughs>
2: I know. I couldn't help it either.
1: Okay. Well, let's look at
2: um, an appeal in relation to HIV transmission. Because in 2004, there was the case of Dika. The defendant's called Mohammed Dika. And he was charged with inflicting two counts of grievous bodily harm under Section 20. We talked about Section 20 in the last episode. He was charged on the basis that while knowing he was HIV positive, he had unprotected sex with two women who were unaware of his infection. Both women were then infected with HIV. Right. He's convicted of this. It goes to appeal. And the appeal court looked at whether the complainants, so that's the two women, were consenting to the risk of infection with HIV when they consented to having sex with the defendant. That's the basis of what they're looking at. Right. The court found that given the complainants had consensually agreed to unprotected sex, they were therefore accepting the risk of such acts. So in other words, because they'd agreed to have unprotected sex with him, they should have known that one of the risks of doing that was that they could be infected with HIV.
1: Again, that's putting all the burden on the person that has no... Like, what? Surely the... Sorry, I, I'm really not being eloquent. But that's putting all the burden on the person that has no idea about anything. How can you consent to something if you're not aware of it? Like, I understand if if the pet deca didn't know, that, that I can understand that whole situation because they're two people completely unaware of their HIV status, let's say, consenting to unprotected sex. But if one knows, surely you have that responsibility in that relationship. So, oh, my God, that's terrible. Mm -hmm. So in looking at the appeal, the judge looked at the case of
2: Clarence, the one we've just talked about, and he found, or she, it doesn't actually specify, its reasoning behind the decision to quash the conviction under Section 20 was no longer relevant in today's law. In other words, what happened with Clarence couldn't be used for this case. Right. I mean, it's the kind of strongest way of saying that, you know, they they reached the wrong decision in that appeal. So he's, he's kind of cast that aside, said, no, we're not going to use Clarence as a basis for this. It says the case of Clarence had not considered the issue of consent because consent to sex was assumed to have been given at the beginning of marriage. Obviously, in this case of Dika, he's not married to either of these women. So you couldn't have used it anyway. Court held that there had been no intention to spread the infection, but by the complainants consenting to unprotected sex, they are prepared, and it's got quote marks, knowingly to run the risk, not the certainty, of infection, as well as other inherent risks, risks, such as unintended pregnancy. Are they joking? No, very much on the
1: side of the defendant, aren't they? Aren't they? Absolutely. Oh, my God. that's Again, it's another sort of vilifying women type thing. Well, you know, it's up to you, isn't it? You want to protect yourself. You need to be the one. Like, this is such a joke. But to use unintended pregnancy
2: and at that, I mean, that couldn't be used today. But to say that, well, you knew that one of the risks was getting pregnant. You clearly weren't bothered about that. So the risk of uh, contracting HIV, that's, that's on you.
1: And remember, the defendant knows he's got HIV. But that's what I can't believe about this. That's what I literally can't believe. that They're going, oh, no, no, you're fine over there, even though you knew and you did this twice. And you didn't disclose or give these people any option. God,
2: I know. And that's the other good point. It's two women, not one, not one person's word against another. Two separate women have come forward and the judge still rules that it's the complainants that need to take responsibility, not the defendant. And that the consent to risk provided a defence under Section 20 and the conviction was quashed. It's terrible. It, It is. It's such victim blaming, isn't it? very blatant victim brain so you know the onus is on the complainant rather than the accused which you know when you say it like that you're like surely not in a in a court of law but but it was you know as we said there's two women but it's okay because they consented so even though he knew he was positive and didn't tell them they're in the wrong because they consented Can you start
1: making noises like a horse? (laughs) I was trying to stop myself from swearing Um, (laughs) because I'm just I'm I'm absolutely flabbergasted. I mean, I I I don't know why I am because I know some of the laws are horrible even from like the 90s 2000s, but it's just oh when you go through them like this and you unpick. I mean, we're only on the second one and they're both just terrible. They are, but we've got a third one. Oh, is it better? is where the law changes. Yes. Oh, okay, good.
2: So we are looking at 2005. So the next year, and we're looking at the case of Feston And He was charged with three counts of inflicting grievous bodily harm under Section 20. He was HIV positive, and he was aware of his condition. He had unprotected sex with three complainants without informing them of his condition and all three contracted HIV. This has gone to appeal. The appeal, slightly different. They're looking at whether there was a reasonable or genuine belief by Konzani that the complainants were aware of his HIV positive status and thus consented to the risk of contracting HIV through unprotected sex.
1: Okay, so it's slightly different. Do we know why they're looking at it in a different way rather than consent? I think a lot of it is to do with his defence of the case.
2: Well, his lawyer's defence of the case. But yes, so they're taking it one step further. So they're saying, could, in all honesty, the complainants, when they're considering risk, have considered HIV? Because, I mean, especially back then, sort of 2005, HIV is quite kind of widely known about, but don't know. Would you consider it? We can look into it actually, as we kind of unpick this. So his defence, Kanzani's defence, was based on a reasonable or genuine belief that these women would have taken his HIV status into consideration, even though he hadn't told them. But the appeal found that Kanzani's concealment of his HIV status was incongruent with honesty, and this is where the case law changes. So in other words. Rather than the onus being on the complainant to take responsibility because they knew the risks of unprotected sex, the onus is on the defendant because he wasn't honest about his status.
1: And that is how it should be. You can't consent to something if you're not aware of it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's weird, isn't it? Because obviously the law is so strict around which so it should be age of consent and things like that. And obviously, if you are under the age of consent in the eyes of the law, there is absolutely no way you could consent to having sex, right? In any way. So consent, it does not exist. So it's almost it I feel like it should almost be the same way. Where how can you there is no way you could consent to something if you aren't if you aren't aware. And you can't even look at whether, oh, is it reasonable to well, no, if you don't know, you cannot consent to that thing. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Does that make sense? Exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah, 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 definitely. So when they're looking at the appeal and making a the decision, they found that there was no evidence to indicate the jury could have inferred, and this did go to jury, this is a Crown Court trial, that the jury could have inferred that Konzani had the honest belief that the complainants had consented to unprotected sex, knowing they were exposing themselves specifically to the risk of contracting HIV. It's exactly what you're saying. When people consider risks around unprotected sex at that time, were they included in their consideration that they could have HIV or that the person that they're choosing to sleep with could have HIV?
1: I guess I don't think you would, because I suppose most people would think, well, we're going to have unprotected sex. So if they're comfortable with unprotected sex, I'm assuming they probably wouldn't be positive because otherwise they'd be telling me, or maybe if they didn't want to tell me, we might use a condom or something. So I feel like it's unreasonable to expect them to be considering that at that time.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. So the case of Deca was referenced, of course. That was kind of the last name case, and they're hinging everything on that case. And the judge acknowledged that yes, if someone has unprotected sex, they're making a the choice in terms of risk and a choice in terms of whether they mitigate those risks. However, the defendant also has a choice about whether he discloses. And in this case, ruled that Konzani had knowingly concealed the fact he had HIV from the complainants, and therefore the choice the complainants made could not reasonably be expected to anticipate. His deception, his concealment of his diagnosis led to them being infected, meaning they couldn't have given proper consent. Exactly what you're saying. You should become a lawyer because they weren't honestly informed. The way they've laid that out makes perfect sense. It's like, of course,
1: you, as you've just
2: said, you cannot consent to something that you don't know about. No, where does
1: the list end yeah. on, on the things you're supposed to consider if that's how they're going to do it? So that's such a good ruling and such a difference in how they had looked at previous cases, which is interesting. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, you feel
2: like they finally found their way with this type of prosecution. It's like, oh, finally, you're all understanding kind of what consent means and and where the owner should be. And this appeal was dismissed. So his conviction stayed, and that was a 10-year sentence in prison. Oh, wow. Yes. Do you want to know a bit of background to his case? Yes. Because it might help understand why the law suddenly changed.
1: Yeah, exactly. The
2: judges changed their opinion.
1: Because I don't know about laws in other countries. So that's I was going to say that sounds terrible, but I mean, I suppose, why should I know about the legal system? But obviously in our country, when I did law, get me pulling my A-level in here, obviously the, you have presiding cases, don't you? So a case sets a precedent that then the next case has to follow. And it's it has to be quite a big thing to deviate away from the previous precedent that that case made, doesn't it? Yeah. So that's why it's quite interesting that it wasn't that big of amount of time, but they have deviated away from the previous cases and what they had upheld.
2: Absolutely. So this is it's, it's, it's a landmark case, really, isn't it? Yeah. In the past, as we've said, the onus is on the complainant and this turns everything around and says, no, 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 the defendant's honesty has to be brought into question as well. Well, let's look at his case because, yes, I think it'll help us understand why the appeal... Um, Was thrown out. So he was born in 1976 and diagnosed with HIV in 2000. In 2001, he met the first complainant. She was 15 and a virgin. They started a relationship and a week later had unprotected sex. She moved in with him but left a few weeks later. She had a blood test just before Christmas 2001 and that showed she had HIV. She'd had two partners after Feston, they both tested negative. She said she knew the risks around getting pregnant but never even thought about the possibility of contracting HIV. What you were saying earlier about, you know, you wouldn't consider that was a risk. She definitely didn't. She's very young. She understands about getting pregnant, but HIV never comes into it. And I think at that age and at that time, there was very little um, HIV awareness, very little sex education in, in school. So, So why should she have thought too much
1: about HIV? I, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's, yeah. I mean, that wouldn't have been far off when we were in school, I suppose. Like, not that far. And I mean, the sex education was terrible.
2: The next year, in 2002, he meets the second complainant. She's 27. They become friends, subsequently start a relationship, and she moved in with him. The relationship deteriorates. She finds out she's pregnant by him, but they separate. When the doctor confirms her pregnancy, he also confirms her HIV status. She's devastated. Her child was born negative, she said in court. She knew the risks of unprotected sex, but she trusted him. And that's another good point, isn't it? They're in a, a committed relationship, um, and she she trusts him. Why wouldn't she have unprotected sex with him?
1: Yeah, and and that's the thing, isn't it? If you have built trust with someone, God, that's a, such a tricky situation. You can't then be just assuming the whole time that they have any sort of STI that they're possibly. You know, you're not going to, like we said in the last episode, you're not going to go through a checklist. Get someone to sign something just before you have sex, stating that they don't have any sort of STIs. Get no. Up.
2: And that's something that you wonder if the court ever considered in, in the last two cases is that basis of trust and um you know, how long do you have to be married to someone before you trust them enough to think that they aren't going to sleep with someone else and get an STI and then pass it on to you and it's all going to be your fault for you know <laughs> for just being married to them. So exactly. I think that's, that's important. If you if you trust someone and you're in a committed relationship, why would you use protection? So the next year, 2003, meets the third complainant. She has a four-year-old child. Both her and the child's father had been tested for HIV because the child's got a complex medical condition and they need to ensure that infection risks are kept to a minimum. She starts a relationship with Festin, initially using condoms, but as the relationship develops, they stop. When the relationship ends, she took an HIV test and was devastated with the result and very worried about the implications on her child's condition. So the case, as we've mentioned earlier, was heard in the Crown Court and the jury were asked to consider risk, whether the complainants knew and accepted the risk. And I think what's interesting to me, maybe to you, probably not to anyone else, but I'll mention it anyway, In summing up, the defence make references to cases that involved, and I quote, consensual, sado masochistic homosexual encounters and whether they constituted ABH or assault. Um, Again, based on whether they were consensual and if you're having that type of relationship, how far does that consent go before it turns into harm? Presumably, the defence used this because they couldn't find anything else to define sexual consent.
1: This was a case that I did do when I did law because I always remember it because I found it bananas- Um, There was a man and he had branded, I think it was his wife's buttocks and she wanted that. It was, she said, very consensual, genuinely, they looked into it, but they still prosecuted him because they said she could not consent to that. So how funny in those earlier cases, when they're saying about these women who, you know, it's all on them because they've accepted the risk and all of this. But actually, I don't know when things are slightly different. It's like, no, no, you couldn't possibly consent to that. Oh,
2: it's very bizarre. It's really bizarre, isn't it? Mm. But I mean, the jury found him guilty. His appeals quashed. He went to prison. And it's this set the tone for future court cases because doubts had been cast about consent and onus on an individual to ensure they didn't contract HIV. That's all addressed in this case, Mm. um, finally. And that's it, really. Next week, we're going to look at someone else who was convicted of reckless transmission. But for this week, we're done. A quick journey through HIV
1: transmission history. But that's that's the thing, isn't it? Because you do wonder. I know we talked about this last week, but where where it big? Yeah, where was the first case? Where did it spring up from? And that really wasn't that long ago. I mean, I know it's what twenty two years. So I suppose, God, why do the two thousands literally seem like they were still five years ago? I know. <laughs> I go. You're right. It's nearly twenty years ago, and there may have been
2: other cases. I've just concentrated on the appeals. Essentially, because it's easier to research because, you know, the summary of the case and the appeal are all in one place. Um, So there could have been other cases of people that were convicted, but they're not referenced in these appeals. And you think they would be because they would be used to kind of hinge your defence on. So this happened last time. So it's only fair that it happens the same way this time. And actually to get case law kind of changed and to like the case of Feston is 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 tough. The prosecution did a really good job in this case. Yeah, I'm glad the jury. No, don't look at the complainants. One of them was a child at the time. Look at the defendant and look at how dishonest he's been. Yeah, and how he's done this three times in three years.
1: Yeah, they made a really good shout on that last one. I was a bit worried that it was just going to be all awful the whole way through. So I'm glad to hear it's changed. Okay, amazing. God, I just want to do the crime ones all the time. (laughs) Oh, forever. Just loving them. They're so good. And there you go. We're done. That was amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to hearing yet more crime stories. Thanks for listening to the HIV podcast. If you enjoyed our
2: podcast, please like, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You
1: can now also follow us on Instagram and TikTok at the HIV podcast for behind the scenes insights and videos.